My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Drew Neiser. He is the founder of Renegade, which is the award-winning strategic boutique for business-to-business innovators. And he also founded CMO Huddles. It is the fastest growing, most engaged community of business-to-business chief marketing officers on the planet. He uh, founded CMO Huddles in 2020, whereas Renegade, he founded back in 1996. He earned his bachelor's in history from Duke University. Uh, I guess it would make sense that he is a huge fan of Ben Franklin as well. And uh, currently you live in Manhattan. Um, And wait, you know, I wanted to mention- That's true. (laughs) I also wanted to mention that uh, Drew, you've been featured, a, a featured marketing expert on ABC News, CNBC, CBS Radio and Tony Robbins podcast, among many others. Um, before we uh, dig into really talking about your book, Renegade Marketing, which you you just released, um, I'd like to get a feel for really where you cut your teeth. What were some of your influences? Really, what kind of set you on on the path to to found these businesses? Well, it's funny. I've, I've listened to a couple of your shows, which I enjoy. And so thank you for having me, Dave. And thank you for doing this work. I know how hard it is to do a podcast and how much time and energy. So I really appreciate that you do it. And it's great to be with you. I listened to your guests and they seem to go back to childhood. And so I started thinking about that as in preparation for this show. And I, there are a number of influences that sort of do speak to some of the things that I've been able to do in, in my career. Uh, I was the youngest of three boys. And so in, in some ways that had a huge impact on it. And I was six years younger than my oldest. And both of my brothers were really intense academic intellectuals. Uh, and so the space in my house was on the jock side of things. So I, I went there. Uh, and, and my dad, it was also very bright, man. I, I had actually recorded a podcast with him, my hundredth episode of my show. Uh, but, and it was, it is a huge influence on me in, in many, many ways, but I'll tell you one story that sort of is, was probably the most profound is we'd play catch a lot and it wouldn't matter what the ball was, whether it was a baseball or uh, a football or a basketball. And he, and we, we do the things, what you always do as a kid, right? Where you'd go to um, uh, catch the winning catch in football, right? On the sideline, one foot in, cause it's college rules and you'd be on the sideline catching it. And um, I drop it sometimes and I catch it sometimes. And my dad kept saying, if you can touch it, you can catch it. And it was such an interesting way of, of putting it. And I, at the time, I think he was just trying to get me to not make excuses. Like, and, but there was another side to it, which was this optimism 
that if you can touch it, you can catch it, right? It's and and so there was this. He sort of took excuses out of my sort of vocabulary, which is as and then I ended up becoming a tennis player where you're all on your own, right? And it's all about uh, if you can if you can get your racket on it, you should be able to get it back over the net. Um, but the optimism that informs so many of the things in my life, um, it, even when things were bad, it it became part of this spirit of, as you describe it, from embers to excellence, is being able to find the opportunity because that optimism of if you can catch it, <laughs> if you can touch it, you can catch it. And so, I, I mean, I could give you tons of examples uh, growing up of things that didn't quite go my way that ended up going my way. Uh, and so I'll stop there because that was a lot on uh, on yeah. that. Well, you you had mentioned that you grew up in Southern California, and and now years later ah. you're you're living in the Northeast and uh, successful businessman. Uh, I I'm really curious about. How, I mean, it's completely different <laughs> lifestyles. Yeah, so um, I, I went to Duke, which is in North Carolina, because uh, the Nizer boys go east. That's just the way it was. Um, so I went to, to Duke, got my four years, and then I went home to California to get a job. And I knew I wanted to either be in film or, or in the advertising marketing business. And uh, I ended up getting a job at a national agency, but local, literally in Newport Beach, California, called Wells Ridge Green. And after about two and a half years, I decided that I wasn't, I was learning everything you weren't supposed to do in the business. I felt that. I felt like every, every lesson was backwards and I wasn't really learning how to be a great uh, marketer. Uh, and so I thought, well, and everybody said, you have to go to New York and you go to New York and you get your two years experience. And then you go back to California and you're, you're New York trained and then you can do whatever you want. So um, concurrently I said, well, maybe I want to go to film school. So I applied to film school, to two film schools, screwed up my applications to both. This is one of those ashes to embers thing uh, and said, all right, well, that's fate. I must, I'll go to New York for a week and see if I can get a job, which I did. I got two offers in a week and started in literally 1982 in New York City. Um, I always with the thought at JWT that I would be there a couple of years. Well, uh, first I started making incredible friends and building a life in New York City. Uh, and eventually I thought I'd get back to California, except then I met the woman of my dreams, my wife, Linda, who uh, uh, is from Buffalo, New York, and she loves the seasons. And as a result, California, not an option. And so, you know, I've again, if we come back to the optimistic theme is I, I can make a great life wherever I am, because that's just sort of who I am. It's like, you know, I'll pick up a racket, I'll get on a tennis court, I'll make some friends, they'll be buddies, we'll build a community and off we go. And so uh, it's, you know, New York City is a wonderful place. Um, you know, would I have spent 40 years in Newport and been happy? Yeah. <laughs> but I've, I've made a very nice life for myself in New York City. So uh, it's just funny how uh, things end up. Yeah, yeah. New York is one of my favorite cities. Uh, it took me a long time to make my way up there, um, but my my cousin, uh, she moved up there when right out of college, and I was like, man, she's crazy. But she she met the man of her dreams. He uh, he graduated from um, NYU 
with his masters and uh yeah they they're living living the dream i i i really i i'm with your wife the seasons are amazing <laughs> up there uh i you know i was born and raised in florida and we get uh two seasons uh, <laughs> yes. a, a little bit cold and hot yeah <laughs> Yeah, um, I will say that for anybody's listening who's under 30, I mean, New York City in your 20s, uh, particularly when you're single, it's hard to imagine a more fun place uh, because there is such a concentration of single people uh, and in the, almost any industry, but particularly in the advertising industry uh, or the media or, you know, Wall Street or whatever uh, area that New York offers you. And so, and because of the concentration, you know, they, they always talk about New Yorkers being tough, but really it's just, a, it's a veneer. Um, and I, I've met incredible people in New York and yeah, they're a little tough on the outside because, you know, there are a lot of people and uh, you gotta be able to, but I've made tremendous friends uh, here and there and but the twenties, man, it's fun. New York city is fun. What led you into marketing? and advertising like how, how did you move in that direction well so that goes back so a couple things one um i actually had a grandfather who had an advertising agencies in the 30s um and he founded this agency with an, another gentleman in milwaukee and then they won the wrigley's business it was called neiser meyerhoff and uh and they won the wrigley business and then eventually my grandfather this is the story his doctor said, you know, I think this business is going to kill you. You better get out. So he left and went on to work for one of the clients and ended up being president of that, of, of Weilers, of, of all things. But the real thing that got me into advertising is I, out of college, I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but I took two months on a sort of camping around Europe tour. It was as cheap as I could do it. Um, and what I found, and I've always loved photography, uh, and I found myself taking pictures of every poster that I saw, a street poster or billboard. And I was just fascinated by, I mean, what was it that drew me to it? And it was this sort of, how do we combine words and pictures to sort of stop you and, and, and get you involved in a story? And I just, that the camera told the story for me when I got home and I looked at all my pictures and I said, you know, there are more pictures of posters than are beautiful buildings here. That's, you know, you're obviously interested in it. And so it was easy for me to say, yeah, this is a probably communications is probably a good business. Okay. My grandfather did it. How hard can it be? Um, but, you know, I've always been interested in, in communications and the media world at large. What led you to pursue a degree in history? So again, this is sort of, this goes back to my family and the sort of their sense of what college is about and college is about teaching you to think, not preparing you for actual practical skills. That's what the notion of a liberal arts college is. And uh, history is one of those subjects in my house that, you know, instead of talking, uh, we ended up having debates about, you know, this battle in World War II, or, you know, we're, we're just this, there's a, it's a family of history buffs, and it has been, uh, and I'm the dumb one in the family, just to be clear on that, relative to the rest of my family and their knowledge, um, but uh, I know more about Ben Franklin than they do, um, because I specialized in Ben, and they're more generalists, they have much broader, uh, but I'm a specialist, uh, so history, majoring in history was just a good 
Um, and I focused on American history. So it's not surprising that I ended up uh, Franklin. But the Franklin story is funny because I came to Franklin through marketing and it was we had a philosophy that we were developing in 2000, uh, uh, yeah, in about 2005, 2006 at Renegade, that marketing could be, we were looking at the world and it's like, it's pollution. Remember all those posters that I took? They were beautiful in Europe. They looked like works of art and we were seeing pollution. And so we said, you know what, maybe marketing can be a form of service and can be do something amazing and not be polluting. So we came up with this idea of marketing as service. And I started looking around for ways of describing what this was. And I ran across Ben Franklin's phrase, well done is better than well said. And that literally, and I know it's a, it's a pun, but it hit me like a lightning bolt. It's like, well done is better than well said. And I had spent so much of my career focused on words. I've ended up writing a lot of taglines and, and things for a lot of companies, but it's the actions that make marketing successful. It's the things that you do as a, as a company, as an individual, that it's all about your actions. Yeah, you know, we all know the phrase is not what you say, it's what you do, but you don't think about that from a marketing perspective. So I was so interested in Franklin that I then started researching. And then I realized after reading out, 25 books on him and, and all around him is that he was America's first chief marketing officer. Um, and in that, and so imagine this, this is your marketing challenge. You're going to go sell a revolution to a King off you go. That's it. You got no money. You got no negotiating power. You got nothing. All you got is a brand name. Cause he was the most famous American at the time. Uh, and he had a brand name. So he goes to France and it takes him a long time, but he gets it done. And if it's not for France, we don't have the weapons, we don't have the soldiers, we don't have the bullets, we don't have the clothes, uh, and frankly, we don't have the money. And so we don't win without France's participation. So he's America's first chief marketing officer. I never looked at it that way. That's, uh, that's pretty cool. You said something uh, a minute ago about, you know, the liberal arts education is really uh, meant to teach you how to think rather than like give you tangible skills. It's really to help shape your, your thinking. And it made me think of uh, a couple of books that I've read based on the grand strategy program at Yale. And I actually used really that, that thought process in my book. It's a, it's a group of four professors that developed this program and their uh, idea was that they wanted to, to teach young men and women who will likely be leading our country how to think and, and develop a, a grand strategy. You know? uh, but they, they did so by well, beginning with the, the great works of strategy, uh, the art of war and uh, Clausewitz, uh, oh, the, the history of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, well, you know, a, a lot of historical um, references there where they, they study it to the point where they can pick it apart and say, all right, now we're, you know, uh, several hundred years later, a thousand years later, and 
these are the mistakes that they made. This is where they did well. How can we apply that in today's world, these lessons? And how can we train ourselves to, to think? And I, and I feel like maybe that's kind of what you were saying, you know, being so um, uh, heavy on the history that what a great way to, to learn how to think and using Ben Franklin as an example, you know, how to develop a marketing strategy and seeing the things that he did. Uh, I, am I close on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things and, and yeah, definitely uh, uh, on, on this that, well, from a liberal, I always say when, when folks, uh, and I'm, in fact, I'm going down to Duke to talk to some students, uh, undergrads, and you know, they ask me, how do I prepare for career and marketing if they do? I say, well, write, <laughs> just write. And, and you write because if you write, you understand. And for me, oftentimes, I don't understand something clearly until I write it down. Well, you know, it takes a lot of work to become a decent writer. And I, college is a great opportunity to sort of st stretch your writing skills. I have to admit, I didn't become a good writer until after college. Uh, I wasn't very good at as good as I would have liked to have been, um, but I wasn't as disciplined as I would have liked to have been in college. I had a lot of things going, a lot of fun stuff going, and a lot of other extracurriculars that helped me, by the way, sort through what I liked and didn't like. Like I, I worked at a TV station uh, as an intern and doing news, and I thought, okay, that I didn't enjoy that process, so that's off the table. I uh, worked as a photographer. I loved that, but I didn't want to do it as a career. So I used college also not just to you know learn history, but to sort of eliminate and learn what I liked uh, to do. And one of the things I, I ran a, a film series and I got to do the marketing for the film series. I love that because when 300 people showed up instead of 100 people showed up, I felt really good about it because uh, I was selling this product of the movie that week that I was very proud that we had selected. So, um, so but I, I think going back to your question, Liberal arts education, while it doesn't teach you how to be a leader necessarily, it does help you learn how to analyze problems, how to bring different ideas together into one thing. And, and I, one of the things so interesting about how academics have changed is they're much less siloed than they were. And you'll see a history person working with uh, a science person and a science person, I know this is happening at Duke a lot, uh, and so the blending of this thinking is really interesting uh, now it, on a college level. You'll see so much more, whereas it used to be very siloed. And that was problematic because there was a history way of thinking and an English way of thinking. And now it's much more uh, broad. Um, and I do want to make one point, which I think is just, this is me just getting wrapped in my underwear, is I don't think history repeats itself. I think history is a... It, you, there are echoes and there are things that you can learn. But if you imagine you're a marketer in 2021 versus 1920, and you look at what the marketing challenge was then and versus the way it would be today, it's very different. You know, it's really different. I mean, it was a homogenous society for the most part. It was a limited range of media. Now you're not uh, in, you know, everything's very, very different. And in history, it's always that same way too. They're different players and they're different countries and so forth. So you can learn from history a lot, uh, but you always have to bring your present day lens to it as well. Um, but I, 
you know, what, what to me, the next part of this thing, and this is fascinating, is great leaders are empathetic. Uh, you know, they have a, a in, in, I noticed like in my book, I talk about what Deloitte ha- does with their university. They teach p- empathy, <laughs> which I think is so amazing. It's like, wait, that's something that's teachable? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, so anyway, I went off sorts of educational tangents there, but I'll let you bring us back. <laughs> I'm, I'm still thinking about your passion for marketing, Ben Franklin, uh, giving back, and and you've done a lot in your life. And I and I'm curious after college, you know, this let's say post uh, bachelor's degree, what are you most proud of? Hmm. Uh, first, I would say my kids. <laughs> Uh, who are both grownups and are fully functioning off the payroll, and they're just delightful human beings. And so that's accomplished, you know, very basic, but, uh, and, you know, uh, proud that I, I'm a good partner, I think, to my wife. She'll, if she, uh, she listens to the show, she can write in her answer. Um, and uh, I've been a good son uh, to my, my dad, God bless him, who's 95 and, and still going strong. Um, and so then I get to business accomplishments and there, there are a couple of things I'm really proud of. One is that over the years, Renegade has gone up and down and up and down. But if you talk to anybody who ever worked at Renegade, most of the time they say it was their favorite place to work. And that, that just, that makes me very happy. (laughs) They really had a great, uh, you know, in some cases, a seminal experience. Uh, that's part one. Part two is giving back to my university. We've had over 25 Dukies be interns or start their careers at Renegade. Um, and that makes me feel good because that was something I never expected I could give back to uh, the university who is so, I've always been grateful they let me in. Uh, and then, you know, you get to modern now where uh, in 2020, and this sort of gets to the ashes, to embers, in 2020 in uh, March, uh, you know, the pandemic strikes. And I look at our business and I've been through, this is exactly, this is history repeating itself or not. 2008 was a big crisis, right? And, and for me, it was a huge crisis because uh, 70% of our business went out the door. Uh, we got stiffed to half a million dollars. And uh, I had just bought the company from the people that I had founded it with. So um, here I am on my own without cash flow and without clients, uh, but with a brand name. Uh, so I'm looking at 2020 like I did at 2028, uh, 2008. I'm going, oh my God. Uh, uh, so what are we going to do here? And so I always, my response because of 2008 and because of other crises is, I don't know how we're going to do, but I know that I can help some other people and chances are they're in a worse case than we are. So that's where I, I reached out to, and this is a long way I'm going to get to, I promise what I'm proud of. So I, <laughs> I reached out to a bunch of chief marketing officers that I know because I've interviewed so many over the last 10 years, it's like over 450. And I reached out to them and I said, I'm thinking right at this moment, that you would really like to talk to some other CMOs about how they're dealing with all this stuff that's coming down on a weekly basis. They said, you're right, Drew, I would. So between April 1st, um, 2020 and October 1st, uh, 2020, we met 55 times with a group of about 
I'm going to say seven to 20 different CMOs. And it was so clear there was a need there. And it was also so clear that this was like my calling. <laughs> After all these years as a, as a marketer, as an agency runner, but I am the guy who can bring CMOs together and help them uh, do their jobs better and maybe drive purpose in their organizations and maybe save the world on the process. So I it's sort of, this is, if, if you think about what, for me, and I'm just getting started with huddles because we officially opened it for businesses, subscription business in uh, 2020 with about 20. And now we have over 90 and we're still, you know, we're adding five to 10 a month that I'm incredibly proud of. And I'm, I'm really proud. Uh, and it's so purposeful for me, but I have to say, I didn't see it coming. And I did, you know, 250 podcasts without any idea where it was going to go. But the podcast led directly to huddles. The articles I've done for the years, I never knew where they were going to go other than I enjoyed doing the interviews. Um, and, uh, you know, anyway, so I, I'm really proud of CMO huddles and we're just getting started. Um, so that's a long-winded answer to what I'm proud of. No, that was a great answer. And it actually uh, led me to an, another question. Um, you, you mentioned that the, the people that have worked at Renegade uh, many times say that it, it's been their favorite place to work. Why do you think that is? I think it's because... Uh, probably because I'm not a killer. <laughs> I'm really not. I am not the person that's just like, get it done or you're fired. Uh, you know, and sometimes to the detriment of the agency, but I never cared. One of the advantages of owning your own shop and I don't have a board of directors. I don't have any investors and I can make choices like, uh, you know what? I, I'm, I'm going to take it on the chin for something being late because some employee didn't want to work on a weekend. I'm okay with that. Uh, and I'll just do it and protect my employees first. And, you know, I think that it, it wasn't necessarily the formula to build, you know, a thousand person agency, but I never wanted to build a thousand person agency. I wanted to build an agency. And it's funny, the larger we got when we were our biggest, it was my least favorite time at the agency. Um, because you, once you get to, we got over a hundred and once you get over a hundred, you don't know everybody, you don't know, you're no longer family. And, and I think that's the, the thing for me clearly, as I look at business as an extended family, I'm needy. <laughs> <laughs> you think it's possible to, to have an organization that's, that's large, that still has that family feel? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I think you, uh, I think you have to be a lot more disciplined about the culture of the organization and more methodical about how you would do it. Um, I know of, look, I know of a number of organizations. I talk about one of them in my book, Park Mobile, who really has and they had imagine going through the pandemic where the first six months of the pandemic, nobody's parking. <laughs> There's no business for them, um, but they kept everybody together and, and they already had a really strong employee first culture. Uh, so I, and they're well, you know, there's several hundred people now and, and, and doing, they've come out of the, uh, the uh, pandemic stronger. Uh, and I think it's because, the culture is so so 
employee first, and they do a lot of smart things. I talk about that in the book a lot about how important it is to uh, engage employees first uh, is, as part of your marketing plan. Um, and so I'm a big believer in that, and it's very culture-driven. So the answer is yes, uh, to a point, to a point. And you've mentioned your book a couple of times, yep. um, Renegade Marketing. What is Renegade Marketing? <laughs> so it's really a mindset. It's a mindset that says that if you have these four traits of courage, artful, thoughtful, and scientific, you're a cat, cool cats, as I call them. Um, it's a mindset that you are absolutely committed to these 12 steps of clearing away the clutter and daring to be distinct. And it's an acceptance that marketing can really have a, a very positive impact on your company, on your culture, on your customers, and, and of course, the world. Now, it's not a book about driving purpose, uh, while I do use that term, because I think you can have big P purpose and a little P purpose. Um, but it's, it's really about thinking just a little bit different. Um, and that's what the CATS framework is about. And, and the CATS framework actually came from my first book, uh, in, where I had 64 different CMOs that I interviewed, and I created this periodic table for marketers. Um, and people asked me after that book, so Drew, you know, I can't, uh, you know, you can't give me 64 traits, you got to give me narrow it down. So looking at it, realize that if you're a courageous thinker, uh, and, or, and to build a courageous strategy, and you're artful in the way you ideate, and you're thoughtful in the way you execution. This goes right back to Ben Franklin and well done is better than well said. And then you use the scientific method, which you could also say is Franklin. Um, you then are a renegade marketer. And those four traits are what defines one. And if you miss any of those, you know, chances are as a chief marketing officer, you're going to fail. But even if you're a CEO of a small organization and you're trying to figure out, well, I got to drive marketing and I got to do this. You need all four of these things, um, or you won't succeed in our very challenging business world. So, and then the book is all about, it's just case after case after case written in a, you know, as close to a novel like style as I could do it, <laughs> you know, with, with sort of some level of suspense in each of the stories. And so that you really would enjoy the experience and would want to be a renegade marketer when you were done. Well, what, what inspired you to, to write your book? So that's a, I love that question. And, and it, it's sort of uh, four years ago, a little bit more than four years ago. Uh, again, remember, I talked to a lot of marketers. I interview a CMO every week for my podcast or some other thing. And this was even before the CMO huddles, I was interviewing CMOs. And what I noticed was that B2B marketing was getting ridiculously complicated. And I would talk to a client of ours and they'd say, well, we're targeting 14 personas and we've got 10 channels that we're uh, communicating to. Um, and we have different messages in all of these things. And I thought, this can't be right. This just can't. And so we did a study in 2019 and then did it again in 2020 just to find out has more, how complicated is marketing got? Well, 90% in both 2019 to 2020 of the uh, CMOs, it was about 230 that we surveyed, 
said, yeah, marketing has gotten ridiculously complicated in the last 12 to 24 months. And the causes are data and channel choices. And, you know, they, they put it on all these tactics. And what I, in my mind, is I put it on them and said, okay, so how do we fix that? Is there a way that we could actually radically simplify B2B marketing? Is, you know, was that a, was that a pipe dream or not? So the first thing I did was we sort of looked at our process at Renegade and we broke it down into the 12 steps that I describe in the book. And we started applying it to our own business and to our clients' business. And we started testing it to see if it would work. And it was like, oh, this really works. This is pretty cool. Well, we can create a plan on a page. Wait, one plan that gives you targets, employees, customers, and prospects. And we can show the whole thing there. That's one page. That's a radically simplified idea. So, um, and so we did that. And then I went on the road um, and talked to a bunch of CMOs. And this is sort of me, imagine an hour long conversation where I'm the keynote speaker. And I sort of threw this out there and I gave them some of the examples. And what I saw was a lot of nodding heads. And so between the work that we were doing for our clients applying this thing, the research that indicated that marketing had gotten so much complicated, it was like, we'll fix it, <laughs> solve the problem, radically simplify B2B marketing and figure out how do you get it down to its core traits of courage, artful, thoughtful, and scientific, and then build that out into three steps within each of those. And, and so we had real world proof that it worked. And you know, I had uh, proof that, uh, that the idea would resonate with marketers. And so I wrote the book, and, but it, I was done with a draft on like March 1st, 2020. And, and I was starting to think about it, uh, what I was going to do with it. And the pandemic hit. And so I went, oh, God, well, I can't publish this for at least six months because uh, I, because I don't know if it's going to work after the pandemic because events are off the table. We got to go to virtual. So I put the book on hold, but I took the 45,000 words and stripped it down to 15,000 words. And we created the mother of all blog posts. And we put that on our website and you can go to the website, renegade.com and you look at B2B brand strategy or whatever, and you'll find that report. And the amazing thing happened is that report was so well traffic and still is we get 200 to 400 visitors a day coming in to read that report 15,000 word report um, and also had a huge impact on our SEO but what validate and so what what that was was more validation that this content is interesting right so then it was a case of I used all of 2020 and the first half of of 2021 to sort of get more cases and validate it even further and, and, and test it and refine it. And so the, the book that came out on October 5th is just so much better than the book that I had done in, in February, 2020. Um, and I'm so glad I waited, but you know, so it's a long time between books. I, my first one came out in 2015. Uh, that wasn't my plan. Cause by the way, my third book will be about Ben Franklin. <laughs> nice. And that's all. And by the way, that's the only book I've ever wanted to write. <laughs> <laughs> Prior to hitting record on the on this interview, we had a little chat. And one of the things that kind of kind of struck me is you you mentioned that you really liked the the title "From Embers to Excellence," and and that you 
for you that it resonated with you. And I, and I was wondering if you could share some of your past experiences that, you know, really, and it sounded like you probably have some with Renegade where, you know, the business was ebbing and flowing and, um, and it sounds like one of them was when the pandemic hit. Yeah. Oh, I got a lot of examples. Oh, I mean, and it's so, it, you know, it could go all the way back to, I didn't get into the fan, the college that all my family went to, you know, that was one. It's like, uh Oh, okay. Now what? Um, and that was, that's why I'm so grateful to Duke for letting me in because that was such a perfect school for me. Um, but you know, you think this is what you want and then you get something else and you go, Oh my God, that's amazing. Um, yeah, the, the uh, woman, the first woman I proposed to turned me down and, and boy, was I lucky, um, in that one in, in mainly because, I mean, she's a perfectly wonderful person, but not the right person for me. And I had sort of created a fantasy around the, because it, it's a long story and, and, and irrelevant, but it was a case where I thought this was the right thing and it didn't work out. And it turned out that was really what was, uh, what was wonderful. Um, there was a period of time in advertising and early in my career where I lost four jobs in two years. And uh, that gave I, that cut me a couple skills. One, really look in the mirror and say, well, what are you good at and what's going wrong here? Um, and some of it was just dumb luck and some of it was of my own doing. Um, but secondly, I got really good at, uh, at one at finding jobs and interviewing, and that was a skill. But I also got really understood how important it was a to have a network and help everybody when they're in between and so i have throughout my career the minute i hear uh anybody has lost their job i call them or i email them and say let's set up a call and i've been doing that for a long long time you make friends that way um you know it's sort of make a deposit in the goodwill bank because so many help so many people help me uh during that uh that that period of time so that was a big, you know, sort of moment. And, and part of that also said to me, all right, you know, when I lost those jobs, I said, you're going to have, you're either going to have your name on the door, which is an expression of own, be the head of an agency uh, before you're 40, or you're going to get out of the damn business uh, because it's just, and sure enough, I was lucky enough that uh, I was working for a division of Dentsu and they said, Hey, Drew, would you like to start a new division to go after Panasonic? And I, I said, sure, with a with an if, and that was, or a, a but, if you will, which was the world doesn't, you know, need another advertising agency. Can we be a little different? Um, they said, we don't care. Just go get Panasonic business. And we said, okay. So our original concept was the anti-gray. And that worked really, really well for 15 years. Uh, that's what, what became Renegade. Um, the first big crisis at Renegade I've sort of described to you was in 2008. But that's uh, so... Uh, on December 17th, I'll never forget this story. So I got a call um, and it was a client. He said, hey, Drew, how are you? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm fine. How are you? And he said, well, not so good. And said, well, you know that half a million dollars that we owe you? And I, I said, oh yeah, I kind of know it pretty well. It's for a project that we're about to go live within about a month and it's going to put our agency back on the map again. It's an incredible program. He goes, yeah, well, you heard of the Madoff scandal. Well, one of our investors and founders lost $10 million. And so they're not going to be able to pay you and we're not going to, they're not paying us and we're not paying you. So have a nice day. Uh, <laughs> so that was how we lost that uh, half a million dollars. And, and I had just bought the company like 47 days earlier. Um, and that was our cash flow. 
And then we knew our largest client was leaving, which is why I was able to buy the company on the cheap. Uh, and then what I didn't know is we were about to go in the worst recession since 1929. So the, that's an embers moment because we had to obviously scale the agency way, 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 way down. Um, and then I brought the team together and said, okay, so uh, here's the survival strategy. We're going to narrow what we do down to content and social. And social was very early in the 2008 period. And we're going to live and die by that. So that's when I started writing uh, regularly. And I said, all right, I'm going to write a blog post or an article every week. And so I got the discipline of writing an article every week. And that has opened up so many doors over the years. Uh, and that's how I started interviewing. Once you commit to writing an article every week, what you'll find is, well, I don't have that many ideas in my head. I better start interviewing people to get this content. And so that's when I started interviewing chief marketing officers. And that's almost all the goodness uh, at this point in my career is because I started doing that without knowing where it was going to go, but realizing it would help our strategy um, one way or another. Um, and so that's a, uh, that's a couple of uh, ashes to embers. And then again, here comes the recession and or here comes a pandemic. And I go, oh, and oh, by the way, I, I mean, there's, there was the blackout, there was 9-11. And we had at the time of 9-11, we had 45 people in the office. And I had to make sure that every single one of them got home. And we're all in a moment of, of shock there. And then it occurred to me, I was frustrated by this because it was like deer in the headlights. And I said, there's something we can do. There's something we can do. And uh, fortunately, we had two clients at the time, Panasonic and IBM, and we just called them and said, hey, you know, there's something we can do here. And Panasonic rushed batteries at down there, not, and, and IBM rushed computers down there. So that was something, right, that we were able to do. And, and so this notion that a crisis is an opportunity has become embedded in me because of that sort of 9-11, because of 2008. So in 2020, it was like, okay, oh, pandemic, okay. Business is going to suck. Who knows what's going to happen? And that's sort of led me right into huddles. And, and you know, here we are a year and a half later, and uh, I'm helping to grow what is the most amazing community that uh, I've, you know, I've seen. That's incredible. What do you think the, the biggest lesson through this CMO huddles and the pandemic and really um, having to shift gears, what do you, what do you feel is the biggest lesson or the biggest takeaway that, you know, down the road, you'll, you'll be able to share and, and like, cause there's, there's some wisdom that comes with having lived through all of this. And I, I'm just wondering for you, what, what is that, that, that you're going to pass on? I'm telling you, I read the book and you read those first three chapters, which are clear away the clutter. And so what did I do in March, 2020, right? As the pandemic I said, okay, what matters? What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you got? And who can you help? Right? So it was strip everything away. Don't worry about that. Who can you help? And so the guiding philosophy for CMO huddles every single day is like, is this good for CMOs? So, and the team that's working on this and they, they'll, they'll say, Hey, Drew, what should we do here? Like somebody wants to talk to one of our huddlers and I say, is it good for the huddler? 
And uh, so it's really simple, but that's because we cleared away the clutter. We said, this is all we do. We help, we help CMOs share care and dare each other to greatness. Share, care, dare. Those are three principles. Now, and by the way, dare to be distinct. We've got a distinct logo. We've got a great little name, but in the experience is distinct. And so we build that into it. And then the purpose of you know, CMO huddles is share, care, dare, right? Share, uh, bring together an elite group of CMOs to share, care, and dare each other to greatness. Okay. So those are the three lessons. It's like clear away the clutter, dare to be distinct, and pounce on your purpose. And that's what a courageous strategy is. And, you know, we put it to work for CMO huddles and we've seen it work for uh, renegade clients. Then it, from there, it's just about, okay, how do you execute? How do you get to, how do you fill it, make it real? Um, but those are, to me, the biggest lessons of, and, and it's just when I, when I go in and if I'm a, sometimes uh, CMOs hire me as a coach, and what I see more often than not is the peanut butter effect. They're spread too thin. Uh, they either have too many direct reports, they have too many things, and they have not mastered the art of saying no, which is what strategy is. Strategy is about saying no, and it's, it's, it's harder than it sounds, um, but there's always nice ways of doing it. Like, that's a great idea. We're going to add that to our list for the next quarter. But right now, we're focused on this because we've cleared away the clutter and we've agreed that we're going to clear, clear away the clutter. And we've, I, you know, in the book, I actually have a, at the end of the chapter, I have a pledge that I ask everybody in the reading of the book to, to, to take. Um, and, and part of that pledge is that if somebody asks you, whatever you add to your list, you take something off. <laughs> uh, and so it's funny because I stopped making lists um, and now it's like, if it's not on my calendar, it's not an action item. I'm looking to see if, oh, here, here's clear away the clutter. I will focus relently on, relentlessly on a handful of strategic priorities. I will have the courage to say no to distractions. I will delegate everything except the things only I can do that move the organization forward. I won't add to my to-do list without taking something off of it. And I will block off 30 minutes a day to think for thinking big. So that's the end of chapter one. Uh, but I, I will tell you, you could stop reading right there. Just put that list up there and, and use that if you're running a business and you do those things. It struck me when you were going through that, that it, it's really written for chief marketing officers, but it's more of a philosophical way of thinking that is applicable to so many different walks of life. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would argue that we all are brands. We all have to dare to be distinct as individuals that, you know, you have your show, you have your philosophy, you, you were reinforcing that with Embers to Excellence, right? That's who you are and part of your brand. And I think everybody as an individual uh, is, it makes those choices as well. Um, and, and so, yes, I, I agree with you that as, as, a, as a sort of fin, philosophical underpinning to a successful business life, um, those are pretty good things. <laughs> yeah. Where's the best place to, to get your book? 
Amazon or Amazon. Yep. Amazon.com renegade marketing. Yep. Ebook, uh, the paperback, the, uh, audio book, which I actually read, which, oh, by the way, is really hard. If you decide to do an audio book, uh, we should talk about that because, um, you know, even though we're both podcasters, reading is a very different art form. And, uh, and, you know, I like to think of myself as expressive and energetic. It was just hard work. Um, and I don't think I was very good at it. So, um, <laughs> Uh, but I did it because uh, I recorded 260 podcasts and I figured the people who listen to the show will probably listen to the audio book and it'll be weird if it wasn't my voice. Yeah, yeah I, I do plan on reading my book and doing, doing the audio. Um, I, I've had a lot of people encourage me to do it and I... I would love to talk to you about it because <laughs> it does seem a little daunting. It is. It's, you know, depending on how long your book is, it, well, for me, it was six 90 minute sessions plus a seventh, like 10 minute they, for the, what they call the pickups. But I never got through a single paragraph without having to reread some part of it. Um, it's just, you know, it's just funny how it is, but I worked with a great producer and, and our uh, production manager, and he coached me through it. Oh, the other thing about it, really important. Here's a, here's an inside tip record it before you go to press. And the reason is you will find typos in your book, no matter how well it's been proofread. And I've talked to a number of uh, folks that, that in that my audio engineer actually said he's never had a reading where they didn't find at least five. Uh, and fortunately for us, we were able to find, and then of course we did find one typo after the fact, which is frustrating, but just there's no, almost impossible to put out 45,000 words without a typo. Um, but you'll find most of them in, in the, in, when, you, when you do the audio. That's a, a funny tip. Your website, where the blog is, what, right. what is the It's renegade.com. Renegade.com. All right. Right. And the, the book website is renegademarketing.com. You can get there through renegade.com. There is one other edition, a very special. I, so this is a funny little marketing thing. So um, I have a hardcover in, uh, in, in my, my hands. And the way I'm uh, sort of describing after you're done reading the paperback or whatever, I say, by the way, if you can go to renegademarketing.com and you go through the process and you build your plan on the page. And if you want to spend 45 minutes with me afterwards talking about how, this, how to pull this plan together, I'll also send you an autographed copy of the hard book. So for a, a wonderful price of $333, you get it 45 minutes of consulting with me after you've gone through the book and read it and put it to, put it to work. Uh, uh, so anyway, I, I have this uh, hardcover, uh, the most expensive hardcover that I've heard of <laughs> that, that, that comes with a consulting. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Well, before we uh, part ways, do you feel there's anything that we should we should touch on that we haven't talked about yet? Uh, you know, one of the things in the book <clears throat> uh, that when we get to this chapter of uh, this section called thoughtful execution, and I'm going to put this out there, whether you're in marketing or not, but I think it's a philosophy that uh, is really important. So we live in the what I call the give to get economy. 
And that is where almost everybody who is communicating to another individual has to give something of value in order to get their attention. And you know, the simplest way to think about it is Google gives you access to all the documents in the world. You give them their eyeballs, right? So there's a, this give to get thing. And so if you think about your business challenge or your personal challenge, and you think about it and frame it in the context of what could I give to this individual that would be a value that would enable us to have a conversation later on where eventually they say, so what do you do, <laughs> right? And, and how do we, and so, and pretty much my last 10 years have been built on figuring out what can I do of value for our prospects? And so that's why I started writing about them. It's like, oh, well, I can get to know them. I can sort of hear them talk. I can write about them and get some brand exposure for them. And of course that led to huddles. So this notion of selling through service is, is a lot more profound than that alliteration happens because it's, it's a philosophy that you can apply to almost any situation, which is don't ask what you're going to get. <laughs> figure out what you can give in any, almost any situation of any business. Uh, and, you know, it's even if you're talking to your wife and, and she's got a problem, what, what she needs at that moment is, is a hug. She doesn't need advice. <laughs> so that's what you're, you're, you're going to give to get. And so this idea of sell through service, and it's funny because during the huddles in June, I think it was one of the CMOs said, that they had developed this program that was helping their customers during the pandemic. And they kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And, and they said that, she said, the more I help, the more we sell. And the less hard we try to sell, the more we sell. And I thought, oh my God, that's the idea here is that we're gonna sell through service. We're gonna do so much uh, in, and be so focused on a group of people that, that we're gonna give them. And in the process, you all feel good. Everybody feels good about that. Um, so it's like, be a giver. <laughs> That's And that chapter uh, nine, uh, while sell through services is in, when I, when I think about it, it, it feels uh, sell is a bad word, um, but philosophically, I'm really saying give, be a giver. So many things that you've said today uh, translate or I mean, it, it just parallels a lot of the stuff that I, I teach in my leadership courses where, you know, I'm, I'm talking about small groups up to, you know, uh, whole battalions and, and small businesses. But the mindset is essentially what you're saying, that you're, that giving of yourself actually improves the team and you gain from that and that that mindset of giving without an expectation or, or even knowing what you're going to get back is, is pretty profound uh, i think so and i think one of the interesting um sort of byproducts of the pandemic and this was fascinating to me in the early stages of huddles where when we were still in beta and uh was that some of the CMOs were saying, God, I, I have to be so much more empathetic now. <laughs> they, they, because, because, 
you know, you, you were dealing with your employee had two kids at home and they were under five and there was no nanny and there was no school and there was, and, you know, life was taking over. And if they, if they were the, the hard charging leader of two years ago, it's like, you know, God, I mean, here's the goals, get it done. Um, they were going to fail. And I just, I thought it was ironic that it took a pandemic for a leader to realize they need to be empathetic, but I don't care. They got there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that, and that, but I, I really think that there is, um, there's a whole group of leaders who've woken up uh, in a way because they now have no choice. And given the great, uh, what do they call it? Uh, resignation, um, it's even more so. Uh, because if you're working for someone who isn't empathetic, who doesn't have, uh, who doesn't seem to care about you as an individual, uh, you know, they're going to leave. And, and, and so, you know, yeah, the, we come back this full circle and what it means to be a leader today, I think is a little bit different. Uh, command and control that, and, and this is why I was, I'm going to go all the way back to the sun sea and the thing you were talking about at Yale all of those arguments are all about command and control. And that's what the sort of war leadership is about. Well, marketing, you know, business leadership today is not command and control. It's interesting that you're, you're talking about that because really there's been a lot of, of studies and, and a lot of things written that really reinforce the fact that the empathetic piece, the emotional intelligence piece of leadership is the most important component. Yeah. That that as far back as I mean I, I know that there there's been books written on leaders in uh, World War One and World War Two all the way up to present. These military leaders, the ones that the the soldiers and sailors and Marines would would follow them to the ends of the earth. It was because they knew that the person they were following genuinely cared about them and cared about their well-being. There's, there's books being written. There, there's uh, actually Dan Goleman is the one who coined the term yep. emotional intelligence. And uh, you know those are several of his books were books that I, I studied uh, in college. And we're still finding leaders of organizations that I don't know just dismiss it it's not like it uh, isn't readily available that knowledge isn't readily available um, what do you what do you think is the cause of that you know I when in doubt follow the money <laughs> and and so I think you have, there are a lot of companies out there that are not being built to last. They were being built to be sold. And so you have a time frame. So if you're building a company to last, then you have to have an employee-driven culture, right? But if you're building a, a, a company that you're going to flip because it's VC or venture-backed or you know, you're planning to go public and, and a few people are going to make a lot of money, then you can be a command control. You don't need the empathy because then you just keep your eye on the bottom line and being able to create a story that it looks like this is a company that can uh, outperform and therefore, so it becomes, so you have to follow the money, I think is really a very simple way of, of looking at it. And uh, if you 
look at certain private organizations. One of the companies I talk a lot about in the book is Case Paper. It's a family-owned business for 75 plus years. And it's a family. I mean, and they have 400 plus employees, but they they run it very differently and they make their decisions very differently and they talk about in a very different way than uh, other, and they have a sense of humor. But, you know, if you go to a, the next level up of a company they compete with, it's either publicly held or, you know, it's a roll up of things and that you have a, a very different structure where it is, you know, it's about financial acumen and getting them the math to work so that someone will buy it and it's just it's very different philosophically so i think it's very simple to look at business that way um and you know you look at other companies uh like salesforce is an amazing one because you know they've had the same philosophy when they were starting up which is you know we're gonna the one 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 uh, or is it the 10, 10, 10, whatever it was, I can't remember, but it's about, you know, 1% of employee, we're going to give 1% of our revenue always to charity, 1% of our time of employees time or something like, and that philosophy has always uh, imbued the organization and you still have the founder at the helm, right? And so, and his philosophy has held be interesting to see, you know, if, if uh, a CEO ever steps down, if that company remains as 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 sort of seemingly committed to um, you know uh, making employees a, a top priority and you know not just shareholder value shareholder value shareholder value right so follow the money Drew thank you so much for for coming on and and talking with me I've gained a lot from this conversation and I. Um, well, I, I'd really love to stay in touch with you. And I, I like the idea of getting uh, the most expensive hardcover book. <laughs> well, that's available on renegademarketing.com. You can go in there. But I really strongly encourage get, we actually, yeah, uh, you know, the ebook is on sale at this very second, but, um, you know, read the book, go through the exercise, and then, you'll then this will the payout will be real uh and that's why I, i've set it up this way uh because it is a you know I, I think there's a lot to talk about in the context of someone's business thank you so much and i'll, right. I'll have your website on, on uh my website and in the show notes and um look forward to talking to you on a personal level all right. Well, Dave, thank you so much. As I said at the beginning of this show, I really appreciate your show and what you're doing and, and uh, uh, keep, keep going. I mean, it is about coming from members to excellence. I mean, life is, you know, it's a journey and it wouldn't be interesting if there weren't some challenges along the way. So again, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.